Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here today with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband. Our daf today, Brachot Mem Vav, forty-six. Okay, now this daf is another one of those dafim where I felt like, oh my goodness, there's so much to talk about. How are we ever going to talk about it? In you know, to find a, either a one thing to talk about or b talk about everything in enough time. So. What I realized was, as I was going through it, that there's a there are thematic links that actually make it easier to find to discuss this entire daf in a sentence or two, um, so to speak. So, for example, there is this running theme of kavod: who gets what kavod? How do you give kavod to whom? What is the order that people do the things in? Now, that's not clear yet at all. Let me try to explain. Um, the the daf begins vav amad it talks about um, Rabbi Zeru was ill. Rabbi Abau went to visit him, right? And then they have a meal. And the question is, who is going to, quote, break bread? And the expression in Hebrew is, in fact, botzea, right? It is literally to break bread. And this is the, you know, this is an age-old tradition of this is how you make a meal. We've talked about this before, that that the meal really began, revolved around the phenomenon of of having it over bread. That's what it means to be kovea on bread. But who's going to do it? Who's going to make a mozi? Who is it the person? Who who is it the guest or is it the host? And is it the greater honor to give it away or is it the greater honor to keep it for yourself, so to speak? Right? So this is exactly what the Gemara says. So what happens? It came time for them to break bread. And Rabbi Abel says to Rabbi Zera, you, you know, you, you're the greater one here. You please break the bread for us. You please make a motzi. Rabbi Zera says, one second, don't, doesn't mar, doesn't the master hold in accord with Rabbi Yochanan, who says the host is supposed to break bread, meaning, no, no, Rabbi Zera, you do it. I'm sorry, Rabbi Abel, you do it. So Rabbi Abel, in the end, did indeed made hamotzi. Now, this is an interesting thing that comes up, you know, even just in our daily lives at our Shabbos table. Do you, what do you give away as an honor to your guests? You ask them to make kiddush, you ask them to make hamotzi, and different people will do different things. Um, but I think that the Gemara, the Gemara comes down on the side of bal habayit botzea, that there's something about the host making the meal has the honor, indeed, of, of breaking bread. This honor question goes on to, you know, throughout the daf, there's a question of who is going to be the leader of a zimun? Who is going to wash Natila Yadayim first? Who is going, how are you going to um, line up your chairs, basically? We'll talk about that in one moment, right? But so throughout here is this question of, is a recognition that there is a certain amount of, on the one hand, hierarchy over who should be getting the the honor, right? If somebody is the greater in stature of Chokhmah or Torah or age or something like that. And also there's the opportunity to give the honor, to be the one who, who honors another person by offering them these, these uh, well, we call them kibbutim nowadays, right? We think of them as, as things of honor, as events of honor. Um, so I found that interesting that, that, you know, to the extent that it's a theme. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is, really towards the end of the duff, but it comes up in this context of honor as well. Um, specifically, I said, you know, how they would arrange the chairs. Now, I've been asking this question all throughout about how how was it that they were reclining when they were eating, when they were drinking? Didn't that get messy? How did that work? 
Well, the closest we've got that the Gemara can provide in terms of a YouTube video might actually be on this daf. So this is talking about meals in general, and the Reish Galuta, that's translated to be the exiler, said to Rav Sheshet, you elderly sages, right, meaning you, you of Chazal, you know, you, you, you might be the, the experts, but really the Persians, and it says literally the Persians, Prasai, are more expert than you are with regard to the etiquette at meals. Why? Because the Persian custom was what if you have two, and the translation here says divans, I don't, if that's how you pronounce it, right? These chaise lounge type of couch things upon which they would recline. Then the idea is that the person who was more important would recline first, and then the second, the person of lesser importance would recline next to him, um, like alongside his head, so that then they could talk, right? If they had to. Um, or, or they could communicate, rather. We'll see in a moment that it's not actually talking. And then when there are three, what happens if you have three people and you have these three chaise lounges, it's really not as convenient as a table and chairs, but okay, fine, right? So then you have the greatest of the three of them would be in the middle. And then the one next to him would be um, the next one of importance. It would be above him. And then the other one would be like below him. Um, and of course, this is again less con- less convenient for what we think of as conversation. So Rav Shisha says to the exarch, to the Rish Galuta, one second, that's messed up. He says it nicer than that. The custom is flawed, right? That's messed up. If the greater, if the person of greater importance wants to speak to the one who's next to him, and he should ha- be able to speak to whoever he wants to, right? He's the one of greatest importance. Then he's got one who's reclining above his head. He has to straighten up. He has to turn around. He has to lean over, right? And only then is he going to be able to speak to him. So the Reish Galuta says, no, the Persians are different. Shani Persai, the Machavele Bamachog. They spoke with hand gestures, especially during the mealtime because they were like busy eating, whatever. So they didn't actually have to sit up. They could just kind of motion to each other and that would be sufficient. So then, So Rav Sheshet turns around and says to the Reish Galuta, Exactly about this. What about Mayim Rishon? I mean, what if you're going to wash before you eat? So we nowadays we call this Mitzila Edaim, right? We wash before bread. But even if you just talk about washing before the meal, where do they begin? Meaning in the Persian custom, who would begin? Who would go first? So the Rish Galuta says they would begin from the greatest, meaning the person of greatest importance. So then she says, well, then that person has to sit and wait and wait and wait until everybody else has washed. So the Rish Galuta says, no, no, they would bring him his table. So here I've got my my the fleshing out of the YouTube video, right? Meaning they've got these chaise lounge divans, whatever that they're lying on. And they kind of are, situ- they're, I can't quite picture it, but almost, right? Where they they kind of line up, not in a row, but kind of angled towards each other, whatever. And with the person of greatest importance in the best place, let's say, to be able to communicate with everybody else. And then when they would go to wash, then they would bring the little table upon which would, you know, would be the food and drink for for each of these people. But first, of course, the person of greatest importance, because he would have been the one to wash first. And so he gets his table right away. Now, the discussion continues, right? You know. I get it goes on to what about my machronim and so on, right? And the and the at the end of the day, we talk about well in in Jewish tradition, right? 
we say that the person of greatest importance does not have to wash, does not wash first if there are more than five people at the meal. Meal, So you could wait, right? You could wait for five people. That's not such a big deal for everybody to finish washing. But what if you have 100 people at the meal? What if you have 40 people at the meal? And now the person of greatest importance who had the covet of washing first has to kind of like dilly-dally, just sit around waiting, waiting, waiting. And now all that idea of giving that person covered is gone, right? Because it's just no longer pleasant. So rather they say, give that person to wash as the, the fifth from the last. So it still is like your priority, but they, wouldn't, they won't have to wait around, um, which is, you know, a nice advantage. So I'm appreciative of this, this, the differences here that are discussed between the Jewish community, let's say, Rav Sheshet representing, and the Reish Galuta talking about what the Persians really did in terms of the, the way they would recline. And Rav Sheshet describes that, you know, the Jewish community at a feast, whatever, would, they would recline differently. They said there's two divans, and the greater of the two people would recline first, and then the next person next to him would be the second of importance. But what if there's three, then the greatest one will recline first, but on the middle one. And then the one second to importance to him will be on the one like kind of, again, above him. And the third one will be below him. But again, I, I still would like my a, a visual or at least a chart, but it does help clarify, at least to me, the idea that there this is how they ate. There's some kind of like the feast, uh, you know, this is not when they're traveling and this is presumably not, I don't know for sure, but I, I'm guessing it's not a regular everyday meal. But if there's a feast, there seems to be this phenomenon. They would recline on the divan and they would have little tables, and and that's that's what they would eat from. And the whole um, ceremony of this, which is utterly foreign to the way we eat nowadays, or nearly utterly foreign, because of the hierarchy and the giving chavod, I think is a very valuable piece of what does it mean to be at a meal in in Chazalic times, right? Uh, the piece about giving chavod, I think we still have that. We do indeed say, you know, the very often it's the master of the house who will go and wash first and sit and wait. And we don't say, oh, it's too many people. Maybe we do if it's hundreds, but not if it's just a, a family, right? And everybody sits and waits until everybody has washed. And then and we come back to this, that the, the master of the house or perhaps the mistress of the house, um, you know, takes charge of establishing the meal <coughs> by, breaking, by breaking bread. Yardena. So I just want to point out one thing on what you said. I also love that it's like the Reish Galuta, who's obviously their job was sort of to interface with the world around. He's the one who comes to say, you know, what the Persian custom is. And then you have Rav Sheshet sort of as like the representative of inner Chazal to say, yes, but this is what our custom is. So I just thought that was like a nice little thing that like it's the Reish Galuta who sort of you know, is our representative in the world at large, who's the one who's coming to say what the outside world at large eating custom is. And I think there's also a nice thing here of saying that Chazal did look to outside cultures to learn things and recognize that they did have value and did teach us certain things. And here, I think the formality of the meal, there was something in Persian culture, at least that, you know, they, they looked at and, you know, where there were similarities and where there were differences. It's, it's what they knew to do, right? Meaning right. nowadays when we sit down to eat, we're also sitting down to eat in the manner of the external culture at large. Right. At a table with chairs, you right. know, not necessarily sitting on the, maybe if we were all in Japan, maybe we'd sit 
low, right? Right. So, right. So I like- There's definitely interaction, right? I, I meant to mention this also, right? The, the fact that we see that there's at least some measure of interaction between the cultures right. or, or communication, right. right? which I also appreciate. Right. But again, but it's that the Reish Galuta who's sort of talking about the outside, the foreign culture. Um, I wanted to draw our attention to one, two kind of interrelated on the DAP. I'm interested, and I think this is a great example of where Gemara and Talmud study can be a little bit confusing because this is like where they bring up a topic and it's not fully explained. And then later on, it will be fully explained. And here, at least what I'm going to talk about is explained to dap him later. Sometimes it could be completely in a different masachet. So what I found interesting on this dap was there's a whole discussion about the benching and if there's only two people and not three people to make a zimun and, you know, discussions about what part of the benching would you say or not say. And there's kind of like this assumption that like you already know what the brachot of what the blessings of benching are. And there's no actual discussion of it. Um, and I think this even comes out later with the discussion about um, and specifically around this bracha of hatova hametiv. So the section of the Gemara I want to focus on, but I'm a Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. So Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak says, Teda da tova hametiv labda raita that this blessing, this is the fourth blessing of Benching, right? Of Hatova Metiv, who's good and does good, is not a Doraita. It's not required. Um, that wasn't part that we had to say by 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 the Torah itself. Sharei Okrino because it was eliminated in the house of a mourner. You wouldn't say it while you were benching in the house of a mourner. And what's his proof of this? Kiditanya, as we learned in Abraisa, what did you say in the house of a mourner? Baruch Hatova Metiv. You would say this blessing of Hatova Metiv. Rabbi Akiva Omer Baruch Dayan Hamet. Rabbi Akiva says, no, you wouldn't say Hatova Metiv. You would say, right? You would say, bless is the true judge or the, the, the true judge, which is what we say actually now when we hear of somebody's death, right? Acknowledging when we hear something that's painful or difficult news that we ultimately believe that that is an expression of God's attribute attribute of, of, of judgment being expressed correctly in this world. So I just want to go a little bit ahead because I think even this opinion of saying right, who is good and does good, and the idea that it could even be said in a house, in a mourner's house. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to explain basically that it's, you know, saying that, uh, you know, they're challenging, they, they go on to challenge that first opinion and say, um, you know, that it would be recited in addition to Baruch Dayan HaMet. But um, you need to understand this Gemara in Andaf Memchet, uh, which appears a little bit later, right? Because that actually explains what the benching was, right? And there it says the following, Tanu Rabbanan, Seder Brachot HaMazon Kachat, Berkat HaMazon Kachi. So this is the actual order of Birkat Amazon, okay? And it goes through, and we'll learn that later when we go on. Um, but then it says, right, that Rivi'it Hatova Hametiv. The fourth blessing is this bracha of Hatova Hametiv, okay? And then it goes on to explain where did they actually um, get it from? And they explain as follows. And it reads as follows. Hatova Hametiv, B'yavna Tiknuha, K'neged Harugei Betar. So it says that that bracha, right, who's good and does good, was established in Yavna. Remember, Yavna, as we talked about earlier, was the city 
that was established as the Torah center after the Beit HaMikdash and after Yerushalayim was destroyed, right? After it was, right, after Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, right, says, Tenli Yavna v'chachmeha, which we'll read about in uh, Masachet Gittin. But Yavna becomes the stronghold of Torah, okay? And it is against the Haruge Beitar. So this is referring to, and this is a little bit of like a who's who, what, what, right? Um, after the destruction of the temple, right, which happens around 70 CE, we have the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, which takes place over a period of about two and a half years. And finally, uh, and the stronghold of that rebellion was in a city called Beitar. And when the Romans finally destroyed Beitar, which was around, if I believe, remember correctly, around 132 CE, okay, they could not actually get in to bury all the Jews who were in that city, right? Which as we know, since our custom is to bury right away, it was considered to be um, a terrible thing that happened to those bodies. And so once they could actually get in to bury the bodies, that's when this bracha was instituted. To Amarav Matna, so, right, Rav Matna says that on the day that the bodies of Beitar were being able to be brought to be buried, this bracha was instituted in Yavna. The tov is that the corpses were actually not decomposed. They still were in good form. They weren't rotted in any way. The hametiv is, right, is that they were, and that God does good, is that they were ultimately brought to burial. So I think you have to know this Gemara to understand our Gemara, because the origins of the bracha, tov hametiv, was actually not over something wonderful that people actually experience in the world. It wasn't like seeing a, a miracle of like the splitting of the sea or something like that. It actually was a miracle that happened, but over something very painful. And I think really what the bracha tova metiv in a way is telling us is, is that in all situations, we do need to actually sometimes see what we think is, what we can actually find that is good. The Baruch Dayan Hamet expression that we say when we hear bad news, right, or what we would think would be more appropriate in the house of a mourner is sort of that expression of like real acute pain, right? It's basically saying, I don't understand what's happening but I understand this is an expression of God's judgment in the world. But the origins of Hatova Ametiv is saying that even when something painful has happened, there is still this ability to maybe at some point see that there could be something that's good about that. Now, it's interesting because we say that bracha in other contexts also, right? Like you say it over uh, if you bring um, a good bottle, like extra wine to the table, you could say Hatova Ametiv. There are certain circumstances over... Uh, good news that you may say that. And there's a whole interesting thing when you would say the blessing of Shachiyanu versus saying Hatova Hametiv. But at least understanding the origin of it, I think gives us a different context maybe of what that blessing is actually trying to express to us. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. I, I was way, curious whether you were going to talk about the wine coming to the table because I think it's very interesting also how things can take on a different identity when in a different context. Meaning if you say because you're sitting at the table and you know, you've been having a low class version of wine, let's say a bottle of wine, and then somebody brings you a gift and it's just so wonderful. So the bracha that you say is not again, because you've already said a but you say meaning like this is even better. And that is in the joyous sense of the term, 
but that isn't the origin of it. So, right, things can be totally removed from context and they come come away with a completely different meaning. I think it is useful that we say Baruch Dayan Hamet as opposed to Hatov HaMetiv because it's so easy to forget the context when the words don't, you know, don't remind, don't have an inherent in them, right? Hatov HaMetiv isn't, doesn't sound like it's about a painful experience. Right, but um, I think, but, 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 my other point here is that if you don't know that other Gemara two pages ahead, the this Gemara seems so odd. Like, why would you say Hatova Hamitiv under this context? But I think it meant something very different to Chazal. Oh, I think that's true. I think that's true. But that's exactly my point that right. that at some point when we take things away from their original context, if you don't have Daf Memchet, if you don't have the backdrop. Right. So then what does it mean? And we have to also work with that. So we have this multi-layered meaning of it. And I think I, I'm going to, you know, go out on a limb here and tie it back to my theme of kavod here, because the idea of Hatov HaMetiv is that you are giving kavod, right? This, you know, as it, as it seems to be throughout the daf. I'm not saying that Chazal intended that. I'm just saying that this is what I'm gleaning, that there's a, a, a attention paid to the other people around us, let's say, and where we give honor. And that is, again, I, I think it's the Rath of um, So that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us, rate us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also, of course, join our WhatsApp group. Uh, you can please join our conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talmud. People have been reviewing us. Thank you so much. Such positive, wonderful, lovely feedback. We'd also be very gratified and welcome all kinds of comments and discussions, what you think of the content of your learning what we're saying, etc. Um, we are looking forward to that conversation. Uh, thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on Hadron. And until tomorrow, go and learn.